I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is the weekly briefing for the week ending October 8th. There have been absolutely extraordinary advances in medical prosthetics technology in recent years. Artificial limbs, once mostly cosmetic, keep getting closer and closer to simulating the functionality of flesh and blood appendages. But there have been clear limits to what prosthetics could do, and many of those limits involved compensating for the loss of human senses. Restoring sight, for example, has so far been restricted almost entirely to science fiction. Perhaps not much longer, though. Researchers at the Illinois Institute of Technology have begun clinical trials of a prosthetic vision system. The basic idea has been around for literally decades, but getting this far required both a series of breakthrough discoveries about how the brain works and a long series of refinements in semiconductor sensors that can be implanted directly in the human brain. The experimental system is unique for many reasons, but one of its most encouraging characteristics is that it is entirely wireless. Even if it doesn't work perfectly, this is still some amazing stuff. Today, we'll be talking with the lead researcher on this project. Philip Troik is the executive director of the Pritzker Institute of Biomedical Science and Engineering at Illinois Tech. In a moment, we'll get back to our interview with Dr. Phil Troik. First, here's a quick rundown of some of the stories you can find in EE Times this week. This has been a big week for artificial intelligence stories. The latest MLPerf scores came out. That phrase is nerd hand for machine learning performance. I just made up the word nerd hand just now. It stands for new engineering recombinant diction shorthand. So new engineering recombinant diction, that's the acronym N-E-R-D or nerd plus the word shorthand. Nerd hand describes how you take these long engineering phrases such as machine learning performance and shorten them into brand new words such as MLPerf, which, when you first start using them, they sound really dorky. Anyway, MLPerf. One company has been coming out on top of most MLPerf scores since they were first introduced roughly a year ago. That company was NVIDIA. But in the latest round of MLPerf testing, a challenger arose. Check out the story by EE Times editor Sally Ward Foxton on what MLPerf is, and who the competition is shaping up to be. You might also want to read an article by EE Times contributor Sonny Baines that explains the difficulties of trying to compare machine learning technologies in the first place. Later in the week, Intel provided details about the second generation of its neuromorphic Loihi chip. The approach is almost a complete departure from the way semiconductor processing has been accomplished from the beginning. It's a fascinating approach to neural networking, and it has a lot of promise, but the technology needs further refinement to be commercially viable. But it's getting closer. The new version delivers a roughly 15-fold increase in neural network capacity per square millimeter of chip area. We also have an article about legislative activity in Europe that echoes the U.S. Chip Act, which is designed to encourage the relocation of semiconductor infrastructure to Western nations. It's in response to the trade war with China. Another article focuses on lithography system specialist ASML. ASML believes it can keep pushing the leading edge of silicon semiconductor technology for at least another decade. 
read our article about how Moore's Law could be extended. If you're already on this podcast episode's webpage, look to your left and you'll see links to all of these stories. Or you can go straight to eetimes.com where you can find these stories along with all of our other coverage. A few years back, documentary filmmaker Rob Spence was all over the news. It wasn't for any of his documentaries, however. Spence had one eye that had degenerated so badly it had to be removed. Now, prosthetic eyeballs have been common for some time, but Spence wanted to try an experiment. Why not replace his eye with a film camera? And so he did. Now, it would have been really cool if Spence could actually see through the camera, but that's not what's going on there. He's able to activate the camera, film whatever he looks at, and then use a wireless link to download the video files to his computer where he can then view them. That project is still ongoing, and it still gets quite a bit of coverage. Lately, I read a notice about yet another prosthetic eye, this one being developed by the Illinois Institute of Technology. I was going to blow right past it, thinking Illinois Tech had just another insert similar to Rob Spence's, because as far as I could tell reading about Rob Spence, a prosthetic eye was the state of the art. It is not. This project is not about prosthetic eyes. It's about artificial vision. The researchers at Illinois Tech have devised an implant that can interface with brain matter. Data from external sensors can be wirelessly communicated to these implants to stimulate a response. It is artificial vision, but it is vision. The National Institute of Health has been supporting this kind of research for some time. One year ago, the NIH gave Illinois Tech a grant of another $2.5 to keep developing the technology. The trend toward interdisciplinary research has been accelerating. We've talked about that before. Illinois Tech is home to one of the more prominent interdisciplinary organizations, the Pritzker Institute of Biomedical Science and Engineering. Today, we'll be introducing you to one of the most aggressively interdisciplinary people we've had on this show, Dr. Philip Troik. For starters, he is the executive director of the Pritzker Institute, a professor of biomedical engineering there, and an affiliate professor at Illinois Tech's Stewart School of Business. Where does the business school come in? Troik is also the chief executive officer of a semiconductor company called Cygenics. Now, Cygenics designs sensors that can sense electromagnetic signals in biological tissue and communicate those signals to prosthetics such as artificial arms or legs. I'd assume the research on those sensors eventually led to the idea of the prosthetic vision system. Well, you know what happens when you assume. I was wrong. But in a moment, you'll learn about that too. And one quick note before we begin. When I began the conversation with Troik, I consistently used old terminology. I began by calling the people involved in clinical trials subjects. Troik pointed out that he strongly prefers the term volunteers especially in the case of these trials, where the people receiving the implants are such active partners in the endeavor. I started by asking Troik about the history of visual prosthetics. Well, I think I can tell that story well, and the field of vision prostheses actually has uh, a very rich and significant history because um, back in the late 1960s in the United Kingdom, there was 
probably the first serious demonstration of a vision prosthesis, which is designed to uh, put image information directly into the brain, into that area of the brain, which is called the uh, occipital lobe and the primary vision cortex, which receives the information normally that starts at the retina and goes up the optic nerve. So that goes to your brain. Okay. And when it gets to your brain, your brain starts decoding all these neural signals, and then it creates the perception of vision. So, you know, you don't have a little TV tube in your head. Instead, your brain creates this perception mm -hmm. from the neural impulses that start out as transduction of light mm -hmm. into neural signals at the retina. So it had been thought for for quite a while in the 20th century that um, it might be possible to put artificial vision information directly into the brain, bypassing the eyes and the optic nerve. Okay. So in the late 1960s, a researcher by the name of Giles Brindley and a very talented um, electrical a biomedical engineer by the name of Peter Donaldson, which is before they even had biomedical engineers, okay, um, they created a, an in, a system for this. And it was, it was amazing technology because they had 80 electrodes mm -hmm. that were placed on the brain and they had 80 packages, electronic packages, the size of a quarter that were all implanted under the scalp and received inputs from 80 individual inductively coupled transmitters wow. that were on the helmet. And it, it looked like this thing, a giant curler sticking out the top of your head. And they actually put three of these systems into uh, this volunteer. And it was an amazing achievement for the time. So it was an inductive uh, uh, system. And mm -hmm. they they literally bypassed the, the uh, optical nerve system and, and stimulated... Uh, the occipital lobe directly, or mm -hmm, that's correct. Okay, and and what did the uh, what did the subject experience? Was she able to see shapes, colors, what? Well, when you do when you stimulate the occipital lobe like that, uh, and the primary vision cortex, you get uh, these spots of light okay. that are called phosphenes. Right, and phosphenes are you know it's similar to you know how when you rub your eyes in the morning. And you, and you see these spots that are before your eyes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's basically what the uh, what the vision prosthesis uh, does. I mean, it cre it injects electrical currents into the brain, mm -hmm. and then you get these these uh, spots of light called phosphenes. And the idea is that with enough phosphenes, you can assemble an image. And so it's sort of like the old. A scoreboard at the ballpark that used to have um, that used to have light bulbs. That was the original concept of it, and it's kind of like uh, an old uh, light bright toy. Yeah, that you used to have. And oh the my idea god, is, we are old. We are we are hitting some some ancient uh, metaphors. Yeah, but the idea is that with with enough spots, you could use those spots as the building blocks of vision and create a, um, a vision perception with that. And, and so to try that, this group in the UK uh, did this. They put electrodes and they had wireless packages for the electrodes and, um, and they were able to create these phosphenes. Well, these were phosphenes that are, were from electrodes on the surface of the brain. Mm -hmm. 
And um, you don't get very distinct phosphines that way. Okay. And it because you know the neurons are are lower, and so you're stimulating a whole group of them at one time with an electrode that's about a millimeter or so in diameter. Okay. So after the UK uh, work had done this, uh, actually right before that, there was the world's first uh, conference on vision prostheses held at the University of Chicago. And the conclusion was it would not be possible to do this. The electrodes would poison the brain. The person would, uh, would be too confused on what they would have. Then the, Giles Brindley did his work. Then they had the second conference on vision prostheses in which it was determined that not only was it possible, but it was necessary to do this you know, oh as a major research effort. And that actually started, was the very beginning of the National Institute's of what is now neurological disorders and stroke. And it started with the idea that um, if someone else in the world could do it, well, America could do it better. And so the NIH created a program mm -hmm. for vision prostheses, but a program in which you had tiny needle electrodes that would penetrate the brain and create much more distinct phosphines with much lower energy and this then became an entire funded project at the NIH called the Neural Prosthesis Program. And they ran that project for almost 30 years. And various contracts were given to develop fundamental technology because nobody knew how this could be done. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew how to do this. Nobody even understood what, what happens when you put an electrode in the brain and start sticking electrical current in. And so... By uh, about the mid-1990s, the NIH had implanted a volunteer with uh, 38 electrodes, mm -hmm. of which they were able to really get useful data from about nine. And they did verify that fundamentally you could do it, you could get phosphines, you could do it in a person who had been blind for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then they said, good, now we need somebody to make an electronic package that can run all this stuff. I competed for it, and uh, it was awarded to the Illinois Institute of Technology, and we started making the electronic package. And then the NIH said, you know, we really don't want to do this project anymore. Huh. And so I said, wait a minute. You know, I, I, just, I just got this contract. And so um, I reorganized the project, and I got all of the people who had been working on it for 30 years, and we created an extramural program in which we could apply to the NIH for money. And we had several um, funded initiatives for this, both public and private, from the NIH, from the DOD. And uh, we started looking towards, well, what will it really take to implant a system in a person in which you could have hundreds of electrodes that followed this intracortical, this micro-stimulation concept? And you know, with all due respect to my colleagues at the NIH, they were a little bit naive about what kind of electronics could actually be used for this. And so uh, after we took over the project in 2004, my group started on the design of what has now become this wireless floating microelectrode array, which is a tiny device about five millimeters in diameter. It's about the size of the button on a AA battery. Okay. Okay. And it's got 16 micro-sized electrodes penetrating from it. It's about three-quarters of a millimeter thick. And this self-sustained module 
has inductive wireless powering and communication. So there's no wires, nothing. You pop it in the brain and you can call it up like a cell phone and talk to each electrode and tell it what to do. That's wild. So before, so you'd mentioned that uh, some of the program administrators were a little naive about what could be done. Was it because they weren't anticipating um, the uh, the necessity of developing something as advanced as what you just described? Were they still like on the the needles idea? What what was it? That... <clears throat> well, the, well, we're, well, we're using the needle electrodes. Okay, but they were they were in the idea that you would have the needle electrodes in little groups. Mm-hmm that are called arrays, but they would connect with wires and they would exit the brain and they would go under the skin to a package that was kind of like a pacemaker package. That sounds uncomfortable for people involved. Well, lots of things get implanted in the head that are pretty big. Okay. And so that isn't really the problem. The problem is you got all these wires coming out of the brain and that isn't good because uh, you get leak of cerebral spinal fluid. But more to the point, uh, surgically, it just wasn't practical. And but it was the conventional way of thinking, and I don't think that the program officers at NIH ever thought that the type of device that we've now developed was even technically possible. Mm. Uh, and we were met with a lot of skepticism because there are these wireless, there are these arrays that go in the brain, um, and they do different things for brain machine interfaces and that, but all of them have wires that go away from the array and connect somewhere to something. And quite often it's a connector on the side of your head. Uh. And so we looked at that surgically, you know, and said, that's a non-starter. It's gotta be all wireless, close it up. And furthermore, these wires, it's sitting there tugging on the electrodes all the time. Oh yeah. That's not very good. The biology isn't like that. And so we have these little floating wireless module uh, arrays these tiny little things and they look like a miniature hairbrush and there's an inserter tool that pops them into the brain and you could get about 40 of them into the area of the occipital lobe so you could get six seven hundred electrodes into there wow so um do you need to map to specific uh, uh, neurons or synapses or or can you insert these in and the brain will will Oh, uh, you've been cheating. You've been you've been reading some stuff ahead of time. No, so. no. <laughs> well, but... <laughs> no, that's exactly right because there are retinal prostheses in which you stimulate at the retina. But, you know, when you stimulate at a certain point in your eye, you know where your brain's going to think it is, right? Because there's a mapping. But when you go to the brain and you stick electrodes in, you don't know where you are on the map. And so when you put them in, there's a mapping process you have to go through in which you stimulate the electrode and you ask the person, well, where do you see something? And then they point. And then you have to record that and you have to map in space where they think they see or they they actually perceive these phosphenes. And then when you map them, then you can start to use them in order to see if you can construct the artificial vision. Oh, that's so cool. So um, I should ask like the basic question. Um, 
starting with the subject, whether the subject's always been blind or or has lost their sight. I'm wondering if you start with a subject who's always who's born blind, um, are, how do you know they're interpreting? And what what language do you use to discuss a phenomenon they've never experienced before? How do they point at something they've never experienced? Now I know you now I know you've been prepping for this because these are all the right questions. <laughs> so uh um as far as we know, if you were blind from birth, the vision cortex never developed mm. in a way because at birth, of course, it's all trimming, right? Your brain trims back all your neural connections to make a certain function. And so there have been cases of, of people who had uh, very early damage to their corneas, uh, even as infants. And then later in life, when they were much older, got corneal transplants. And they had very difficult time interpreting the world around them. They couldn't, like, just for example, on an airplane, they couldn't tell the difference between the flight attendants and the passengers. Mm -hmm. Or stairs didn't make any sense to them. Okay. So, the, and it's because your brain, is, you know, half of your brain is dedicated to processing vision. And so it's an amazing neural machine. And if it didn't develop in a way we expect, well, then you you don't know and you can't rely upon the function of that neural machinery. Now, that being said, what we're doing is not trying to restore biological vision because, you know, you got 10 million connections that go to each side of your brain and we're lucky if we could get a thousand electrodes. Okay. But uh, we're trying to do artificial vision, which really means we're manipulating the neural machine that's there and trying to inject this artificial vision information. And so if that neural machine developed in a way that is unexpected, we're not quite sure how we would do that, but it doesn't mean we couldn't. Right. But right now, wisdom is you need to have had early age vision so that your vision cortex developed. And in the clinical trial we're doing right now, we're recruiting five participants to, to help us and receive the system to determine really how could we use this interface yeah. in order to communicate to the brain. That's pretty wild. So um, not only do you have to map the brain, um, if you're going to do artificial vision, are you going to have to teach yourselves what the 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 artificial site the the actual uh, you know whatever it is that you're trying to create as an artificial vision that vision mapping to um something that the volunteer can interpret that's right and so that's the translation of when you get an image into a camera uh -huh. how do you translate that right. into the stimulation signals that says put these many microamps through on this electrode for this amount of time. How do you do that? So imagine if you took a computer and if you opened it up and you threw a bunch of wires into it and tried to stick some signals in to get windows to come up. 
Okay. You know, <laughs> so that's kind of what we're trying to do. I would like to see a bunch of engineers at like Intel actually go through that exercise. Here's a room. Here's some wires. You know, here's a box. Yeah, just, you know, can you think, can you kind of reverse engineer and figure out? So it it is, it is it's a tremendous challenge, but it's the thing that has really kept our team and all researchers who have worked on this, and some have given their whole lives to the project, because the implications are profound. If we can devise a safe wireless interface to the brain in which we can then put artificial image information in, or any information, think of the applications. And I'll tell you, the most uh, thought-provoking one is not medical. What would you think it would be? Uh, in terms of, of, of... If you had a way that you could stick artificial information into the brain in a way that was different than the way our senses normally take it in, what do you think the killer application is? Uh, uh, we've been writing a lot about autonomous vehicles. That, that That's one possibility, I would think. Gaming. 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 I, how would I... I should have known. I mean, you know, this is really, really futuristic. Yeah. But if there was a safe way to get a neural implant in which you could have an artificial link to your brain, this is science fiction almost. And, you know, this is the stuff that science sci-fi gaming, you know, stories are made of. Well, right? I got to tell you, I mean, like I've, I've done I've done VR, AR, and, uh, yeah. and I'm, even, even with out um, a headset on. The headset makes it worse, but I'm one of those people who gets motion sick. And that's true even when I'm watching a video game on a screen. I can uh -huh. see where this would yeah. has the potential to bypass. In any case, it's thought-provoking, and there's certainly a whole range of medical applications yeah. for which this type of interface you know, could be, you know, extremely useful and, and game-changing. So the that's what keeps us all going. And your original question about the technology, um, you know, without, you know, being a little too self-promoting, I have to say that we're the only ones that have this type of module in this form. And it's not because it's so exotic technology. I, I, in all candor, it's because we've taken available technology and shaped it in a way that makes this possible. And so we made engineering choices. We made, you know, circuit design choices that if you were really trying to push the envelope, you wouldn't make the, you'd say, oh, well, this is the boring way to do it. But guess what? We've actually got an interface now that we're ready to try and that works. And so we're very enthused about it. That's pretty cool. So you've got the interface. What's the input? Ah, well, once you have the interface, you know, I think maybe my work's done, no. right? But then, yeah, now it's the psychophysicists. The psychophysicists are the ones who have to figure out how to talk to the brain. I so gotta stop we you. Don't, what is a, yeah. I, I am certain that three or four people that listen to this are not going to know what a psychophysicist is. A psychophysicist is just someone who is uh, exploring how we process information in a way 
And for visual psychophysicists, they're ones that look at how can you define this vision information and how can you then manipulate the vision system in order to produce a desired result. And so um, we don't know what the artificial vision might be like. Now, other people have had cortical implants, not as sophisticated as, as what we will have, um, but uh, the best analogy that we can think of is, you know, if you have a kitchen colander mm -hmm. in which you strain noodles mm -hmm. in it and you have a bunch of holes in there and you hold it up in front of your face and you try to look through that and move it around and see what the world would look like. That's maybe the best analogy that we can think of. But you know, people are very good at adapting to a minimum amount of information. And one former person who had a less advanced version of a cortical prosthesis, all they had was nine phosphenes, nine spots. But with those, that person was able to detect where the edge of the curb was in a more sophisticated way and was able to navigate to a job that was much further away from his house. And so you don't, it, you know, it's not about seeing the big E on an eye chart. It's about how does the enhanced vision perception improve your quality of life? Well, this opens up kind of a different question. If we're talking about sensors and we're still figuring out what the sensor input would be, um, does it have to be in the visible light spectrum very good very good no it doesn't right so in fact you could um you could have like night vision mm -hmm. right because night vision is a transduction of the of non-visible to visible and then goes to your eyes okay so you could use infrared you could use ultraviolet you could use other sensing and still use this phosphine interface mm -hmm. in which uh, we're putting information into the brain. So yes, all those are possibilities and it is, it, it is a frontier because nobody knows how to do this. But before you can do it, you need the interface. And before you can have the interface, you need electrical engineers who are able to figure out how to actually make this little wireless cell network work in your brain. Wow. Okay, so all of our listeners are engineers, and I'm sure they're as curious as I am. Talk to us about the, the, uh, the implant and, and the interface. So the implant, the implant is very simple physically. Uh, it has the 16 electrodes that are, the tips of them are sculpted so that uh, they come to a not sharp point, but kind of a blunt point. And they're about, uh, the tips are about six microns in diameter. So to give you a point of reference, one of the hairs on your head is about 100 microns in diameter. So they're very small electrodes, very tiny tips. They're made out of a material called iridium. And you can grow an oxide layer on iridium, uh, which is uh, very suitable for injecting charge safely into neural tissue. Okay. It's ironic because iridium is not native to the earth. It came from 
the asteroid that hit the Earth that killed the dinosaurs, and it's all contained in the KT boundaries. So you have to mine it from that one little segment of the Earth. So we like to say that we're using material from outer space in order to make our, our implants. But Wow. So, so uh, you know, wow. I mean, uh, I suppose this is very species-centric, but, you know, I'm willing to sacrifice dinosaurs for well you know i have a slide that says we were lucky to get iridium but you know what 90 percent of the life on the planet earth had to be wiped out so we could get it (laughs) yeah but so the electrodes then connect through an interconnect layer a little substrate to a single integrated circuit chip and we designed that chip ourselves it's obviously not one you buy at you know the old radio shack and um, that chi- <laughs> oh my god with the old, with the old references again you and I, I just, go ahead. well you know engineers listen to this they got to learn those right so right. so and then that chip all has uh, outputs to all the electrodes and the only input is two connections that go to a little magnetic coil and that coil inductively receives power and communications over a four and a half megahertz link. And we can modulate that and we can talk to the device and we can also query the device so it can show us the waveforms that are on the electrodes so we know that everything's working right. So we designed that integrated circuit chip and it's not too sophisticated. It's a 0.8 micron process. But um, that chip, which is about two millimeters by two millimeters, goes in this five millimeter round package and uh, the whole thing is encapsulated in a polymer for protection against the body mm-hmm. fluids. And um, the at four and a half megahertz, that's the body is pretty transparent to that. So you can easily put in magnetic uh, energy in order to power the device, and then we frequency shift key it and we communicate with it. So it's um, it took a while to get the chip all right. And, uh, and uh, there are lots of failures in the literature for these types of chips, but um, it's a pretty nifty little device. And you can call up any electrode, any channel, and you can tell it for how long and for how much to put out a current pulse. And, um, and we transmit in it about uh, 1.2 megabits per second off of 4.5 megahertz carrier, which is yeah. pretty good. So um, that's, basically, that's basically what it is and what it does. That is really exciting. Um, so um, I, I note that you're, you're, there's an association. You have the project that uh, at the university, and you're also at Cygenics. And I'm, I'm, I'm at, did I pronounce the name of the company correctly? That is correct. And for complete disclosure, Cygenics is actually a company of which I'm part owner. Okay. But Cygenics is one of eight organizations, which include Illinois Tech, Johns Hopkins, uh, University of Chicago, Rush University Medical Center, uh, University of Texas, and there's a company called Microprobes. And this is an eight-institution project with many, many dedicated. So I don't want to sound self-promoting, but the Cygenics part of it is we're an ASIC design company. And one of the reasons for me forming it is because you really can't do an ASIC design like this in a university lab. Right. <laughs> you, you, you know, anybody knows how that goes, you know. The graduate student does 90% of it on the thesis. They leave. Nobody knows where the files are, <laughs> you know. So, so no, it required a, a, a more, 
you know, it required an organization to to hire the grad student, right? Well, and the organization, well, the organization is actually one of a participants off this project, which is funded by the Brain Initiative. And so, um, you know, if I can give a, a an email address here, if if anyone knows people who have blindness and who are interested in participating, we have a dedicated email address where they can contact us to get more information. And so that is at ICVP at IIT.edu. So it's ICVP for intracortical visual prosthesis, ICVP at IIT.edu. And anyone who is interested in getting more information about the project, you can just email us at that address, and it's monitored every day. That was Philip Troik, director of the Pritzker Institute of Biomedical Science and Engineering at Illinois Tech. And not a single mention of cyborgs or the $6 million man. Huh? Oh, wait. Dope! Anyway, as you heard, the Institute is recruiting, looking for five volunteers for ongoing clinical trials. The technology that Troik and his colleagues are creating has potential application beyond artificial vision. He noted that every organ in the human body is controlled by nerves. Typical therapy today for organs that aren't behaving the way they're supposed to is pharmaceutical but there are usually systemic consequences to that. Now, the conjecture is that it might be possible to put a neural interface on the nerves that go to the liver or the kidneys or any other organ. Troik assured me that there are several major pharmaceutical companies working on exactly that. When you get your diagnosis, you'll go to a pharmacy, but it won't be for drugs It'll be for a software program to control your neural implants to direct your organs what to do. Things are getting pretty interesting, huh? And that concludes this episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. What were the what were the challenges? Were there ever, was there ever a day like I can't figure this out and this might be our dead end? Five times a week, <laughs> <laughs> five times a week. I mean, I gotta say that yeah, uh, we ought we 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 sometimes joke about it, and we're not done. These it, tomorrow one could pop up, but uh, there have been numerous things technologically, biologically, that you know you become aware of. And then you say, well, this could just be a showstopper. I mean, if we can't figure out how to get around this. Um, but there were there were a couple where it was kind of like, all right, if we don't figure this out, you know, how many decades of work are gone?